trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. However you found this program, I'm grateful that you did. Thankful that you're giving it a chance. And I welcome you to our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Our program's brought to you by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Sorry, that's for the sake of our international listeners. (laughs) What? Don't laugh. 1% of my audience is in Brazil for some reason. I have no idea why. Also, by great sponsors like lifesavingfood.com at monticellocollege.org. So I want to start with a a little bit of a gut check today. I uh, had a chance, I had a conversation with with a neighbor who uh, stopped me on Saturday and says, Hey, I've been listening to your show for about the last three weeks. Now, you got to understand, I'm new in town. So there are people who are still kind of, you know, checking out, hey, uh, who's the, you know, who's who's the guy who <clears throat> does the does the radio show and, you know, does the podcast and whatnot. I'm grateful anytime anybody gives me a chance. And if they tell me that they've listened more than once, and I'm really grateful because I just don't take it for granted that somebody's going to keep listening. This isn't a message that's for everybody, although I do wish everybody would listen. But here was here was my gut check. This neighbor said, I've been listening for the last three weeks, uh, you know, enjoy the show. But he says, I, I had to take a break for about a week just because sometimes it's almost too much to handle. And I appreciate that kind of feedback because as hard as I try not to bring more fear or more anger into your life via the various articles I share, the guests I have, or, or the commentary that I share, sometimes I get caught up in the moment. And if I'm passionate about something, I may get hyper fixated on it and not even realize I'm doing it. So I love this kind of feedback. It reminds me, you know, step back every once in a while, take a deep breath. And and you're going to hear me say this, and I don't know how many other hosts will tell you, but if you need to unplug, if you need to stop listening for a while, do it. You know what's best for your heart, mind, and soul. And if if what I'm sharing is is causing you... Um, discomfort. Well, it's not surprising. This is these are some pretty uncomfortable truths. But if it becomes overwhelming, yeah, that's a pretty good signal. Maybe it's time to back off, take a dandelion break, take a walk, reset. I have to do this from time to time as well. In fact, I've had people ask me, "How do you talk about the stuff you talk about day in and day out without becoming weighed down to the point where it's just like this is hopeless?" And there are times when I feel like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm optimistic. I feel a sense of purpose. I, like like Lavoie Finnecum used to say, every, every time I met the guy, he would say something to the effect of, we were born for this time. And he said it with such conviction that uh, I just, I felt it to my bones. And I still believe that. But there are times when the news starts really stacking up that I find myself going, holy cow, this is hard. So a little bit of advice. I'm not a mental health professional. I'm not even a guy who takes himself that seriously, so it's it's okay if you turn off the show. I'm I'm all right. Come back and check and see if I've you know come to my senses <laughs> at a later time. But but I understand sometimes you've got to take that break and unplug, and it's surprising how quickly the world starts to look 
more normal. So there's nothing wrong with that. I want to encourage you, too, to think about this in terms of, um, yes, these are difficult times. I know it's almost, it sounds like it's so trite. Oh, these difficult times. We're all in this together. But for some people, this is really, really tough. Economically, politically, health-wise, I mean, we have, our world has changed so much in the last two years that it's almost staggering for many people. And the tough part about that is learning how to be resilient, not just to survive, but to actually improve when things start to go sideways. Came across an article by Leah Babauta, Developing Extraordinary Resilience. And I thought, you know, this would be a great note to start the week on. So that's why I'm sharing this with you in the hopes that if you have found yourself feeling like, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe you got some bad news over the weekend. So just hypothetically, a massive hurricane hits on the Gulf Coast and shuts down 95% of the Gulf Coast oil production for the foreseeable future. Just hypothetically, if that were to happen, I mean, thank goodness at least gas prices are nice and low right now, but say they were to go higher than than right now. That could put a crimp in people's lifestyles because the cost of everything is attached to the cost of fuel. And, well, anyway, you get the point. How can you handle these kinds of setbacks and come out better on the other side? Here's what Leo Babauta has to say. First of all, he recognizes that every one of us is beset with difficulties, obstacles, pain, tiredness, and a thousand other setbacks, small and large. And he says what determines whether we take these setbacks in stride or let them bring us down is something that psychologists call resilience. That's the ability to come back from setbacks, to adapt, learn, and not be dragged down by your setbacks. Now, this is stuff he writes about a lot. He's, he is very into Zen. And if you're into Zen, you'll understand. This is, you know, finding that, that oneness with the universe, that peace of being in the moment. And he says, I found resilience to be an important factor in my own journey from struggling through finances and health changes over the years to navigating the scary and uncertain waters of running my own business. But he says, resilience is what has allowed him to run several marathons and an ultra marathon, among other physical challenges, despite injuries and other training setbacks. Okay, good example. It's helped him to write numerous books and courses, even in the middle of personal challenges, fears, delays due to procrastination, and more. It's helped him face challenges such as debt or declining income with a positive attitude and deal with the challenges as they come. I like this next one, too. It's helped him to raise six kids, perhaps with a little help from his wife, no matter what difficulties they face or what personal baggage he's bringing as a father. And to deal with deaths in the family with an open heart, not only finding compassion for my own grief, but helping my family members in the midst of theirs. Now, Leo Bobauta says, look, none of this is to brag, but it's to show the power of simple resilience and as I go through that list of his, by the way, I'm thinking, I bet a lot of us are nodding our heads going, okay, he can relate then. He, can, he could probably relate to some of the things that I'm going through because I recognize things there that I'm struggling with. Leo Bobauta says, I'm not greater than any other human, but resilience has helped me deal with these difficulties as I'm sure it has for many of you. It's such a powerful thing, resilience, but how do you develop it? 
Because make no mistake, he says it's a set of skills, a set of capabilities or capacities that can be developed over time. Now, some people might be born with greater tendencies toward resiliency, but his point is that we can all get better at it. So he says, I'm going to offer a set of practices that you can work on if you want to develop extraordinary resiliency, and I hope you find them useful. So he says, whenever you face stress or difficulty or grief, pain, struggle, setbacks, failure, disappointment, frustration, anger, uncertainty, whether it's big ones or little ones throughout the day, see it as an opportunity to practice. And these are some of the things he recommends. Number one, notice what you're not seeing. So when you're frustrated or disappointed or bored or something, it's because you're only seeing what you lack on the bad side of things. That means you're blinding yourself to the whole picture. In this moment of someone being rude to you, do you notice that they're in pain? That they have a tender, loving heart inside of them? That they are, in fact, a gift? Do you notice your own aliveness, the sunlight around you, the wonderful sounds of the day that surround you? He says, in each moment, there are amazing things to notice. And when we focused only on the parts we don't like, we're stuck in tunnel vision and therefore missing out on the greatness of life. What is the amazingness you're not seeing? Secondly, he talks about tapping into something bigger than yourself. Now, he says, as a father, it's amazing what I'll go through to help my kids. I'll put myself through incredible discomfort, even if if, if it means protecting them, helping them somehow, and it doesn't even feel like a sacrifice. Anyone who serves others knows this feeling. When you're doing something for others, the discomfort is just an afterthought. So when you're facing difficulty, if you can connect your task to the something bigger than yourself, serving others and not just yourself, that difficulty becomes much more insignificant. In this way, every difficulty can be seen as no big deal. Third, he recommends practice compassion for yourself and others. Because when you're in pain, you just notice that. Wish yourself peace and happiness as you would wish peace from pain for a loved one. And if someone in front of you is angry or irritated, wish them peace from anger as well. Every difficult interaction is an opportunity to practice this key skill. I like to think of it this way. It's, uh, you know, just because someone is having a bad day doesn't mean you have to have one too. You don't have to make their pain your pain. But you can definitely practice compassion by not bringing more anger or more pain to the situation. Now, he's got a couple other suggestions. I'm going to encourage you to go to the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Check them out for yourself. Leave a comment. I appreciate your feedback and can always use it in case I take myself too seriously or something. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just got to say a couple of words about lifesavingfoods.com. Now more than ever, I am recognizing why it is such a great idea to have a good food storage program. And by a good food storage program, I mean one that consists of foods that you actually eat, that is being regularly used, and that you know how to use. I mean, look, it's great. Well, I got 30 tons of wheat sitting out there in the cellar, and, you know, boy, we won't go hungry. But if you have ever just, you know, tried, if you've tried to go from a, a diet like most people eat to eating whole wheat-based products or just eating whole wheat itself, wheat berries or whatnot, 
man, oh man, you could be in for a rude awakening. As in, you know, the uh, turbo laxative scene from Dumb and Dumber. It's, uh, you know, wheat is something that you almost have to build up a little bit of tolerance to before you just dive in and, well, we're going to be eating wheat berries for the next 10 years, folks. No, you'll be miserable for a while, though, (laughs) if you don't prepare. But I love the fact that uh, there are so many options available to us today. Not just in terms of the types of foods that are available, but 25-year shelf life. I love that uh, you can get different size packages. You don't have to buy a whole year supply all at once. For some people, that's just that's too daunting. You can start with a, a week's supply or, or a month's supply or a grab-and-go bag. Check it out for yourself at lifesavingfood.com. I promise you, you'll find things that will be worth your while. And you get 10% off with, you, with the mention of HIDE, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code at checkout. So here's something that I would guess most people have not been talking about across the dinner table. Unless, of course, you're a financial planner, maybe an accountant or something like that. How societies save for an uncertain future. I'm just going to hit the high points of this article. This is from Joaquin Book for the American Institute for Economic Research. If you haven't subscribed to their regular daily emails, you are missing out on a wealth of information about a lot of different topics. This is a good one about, uh, you know, daily economy and saving for the future. I've never thought of it this way, but Joaquin Book wrote an article recently about how money is society's technology for moving value across time. Now, without defining it more narrowly, he says, which monetary economists do to their heart's content. He says, money is the technology by which we arrange the division of labor. I do my thing, you do yours, and we trade this, We can trade the surplus production with one another. Now, in this article, he explained how this fundamental insight of human civilization doesn't require money. After all, we can trade in favors or promises to one another, but codifying those promises into a detached separate item makes them easier to use, especially if we're transacting in a society of strangers numbering in the millions. So when you zoom out across time, the problems you face when saving for your immediate or far-off future is a perennial problem that every society has faced. Because you're trying to figure out how to maintain yourself, survive, maybe even thrive, when you're no longer young, fit, energetic, or smart enough to produce the value that previously sustained you. We know that we will grow old, slowly and then suddenly. We know that we will go through rough patches of illness. And so we need to put away economic value for such rainy days. And from here he talks about there are three avenues that societies can use to deliver on this. One of them is promises to deliver. The second is a standard where we trust the issuer of worthless tokens. By the way, that would be where we are today. And the third is a real-world resource standard. Now, he breaks each one of these down, says, for instance, if we operated an economy no more complicated than a hunter-gatherer tribe or a subsistence village, that structure of promises and goods for goods works. Because we don't have money, stocks, real estate, or many durable commodities. Instead, you place your faith in the tribe's future ability to provide us with what we need. We bypass the issues of money and monetary regimes by producing, distributing, and consuming correct, directly rather, the goods and services we, we require. Now, some economists think, well, that's efficient. You're maximally using all of the few resources you have access to. And here's what it would look like in a real-world example. If I kill a buffalo today, I share it with you, and the implicit exchange is, well, I'm too old to kill a buffalo, 
or on those days when I fail, I share in your successful kill. But Joaquin Book points out the history of human civilization has mostly been a battle between the second and third approaches. So that first approach where we're going to make promises, look, I'll take care of you when you're young, you take care of me in my old age. Now, that you kind of see that dynamic between parents and kids, but, you know, it, it, it only works to a certain extent. For the most part, the idea of trading uh, or trusting the issuer of worthless tokens and real-world resource standards, those two things have been the battle that we've seen between centralized structures controlling mandated money and structures that use decentralized real-world resources for their monetary purposes. But in that second instance, the minute we can't fully trust one another or can credibly commit or enforce deviations from such trust, those are the only uh, two options available to solve society's value-transferring problems. So most of us have experience with central banks operating um, using paper currencies of negligible non-monetary value and private banks issuing deposits on top of those currencies. Now, I know people don't like to think about this, but it's only money because you believe it's money. The pieces of paper in your wallet or in your purse, yeah, they're cool. Yeah, and I swoon when I see a $100 bill come across my hand too, but... In the end, it's really a piece of paper representing $100 in value, and that only works as long as I believe that it's worth that, and everybody else believes that too. If for some reason that trust should disappear, if the person running the printing press misuses it, then uh, we could have some problems. There's a risk for anybody using those tokens, you know, the dollar bills and whatnot, and we're starting to see this now. People who are living on a fixed income, for instance, every dollar they have socked away in their bank account, you know, in the form of electrons or a note on somebody's ledger, they lose purchasing power from that dollar because of the insane amounts of money being printed and dumped into the economy. This is simple inflation. And so it robs them of purchasing power and that costs them down the road. If grandma has been living on a fixed income and, you know, she knows I can get by on this much per month, but every month the purchasing power of every dollar in her savings is decreasing, yeah, she's going to have a problem in pretty short order. And then, you know, it's it, it becomes more like a, a Ponzi or pyramid scheme. Now, when that third alternative that he mentions here, using tokens that have some alternative use or intrinsic value in economists speak, meaning the material is, uh, is worth something to someone. This is where you talk about commodity monies like copper, silver, or gold. Adam Smith's famous analogy was with roads, they take up space that we could have used for farming, but they serve the valuable purpose in allowing us easier transport from here to there and from the past to the present. Now, this could bring us to a discussion of cryptocurrency. He does go into that. And, you know, I don't know that he comes by or, or he comes to a conclusion here that says, oh, yeah, you know, this is this is the way to go. But it is good to see that decentralization. And the, bro- the problem here is, he says, all societies have tried to overcome this issue of moving value through time and ensuring that uh, our individual livelihood will still be maintained when we're too old to produce the value that sustains us. 
So when you think of it in those terms, what am I doing today to create value that will still be valuable when I reach the age where I'm no longer able to create value? I mean, this is where we need to get a financial advisor on, right? Talk about how money should work for you. And by the way, uh, Joaquin Book in his article doesn't really provide like, uh, you know, okay, so here's the solution. This is what everybody should do. He just points out the problem and explains, you know, people have worked on this, you know, uh, politics, other people's shifting wants and desires, uncertain technologies. These all complicate the situation. But the fundamental problem of how to move value across time to where you need it in the future, something everybody's still working on. Personally, I lean towards commodities as a hedge just because you can put your hands on them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I promised myself I would try to restrict how much I spend, how much time I spend talking about COVID and lockdowns and those sort of things today. But uh, it's it's a huge part of what's going on around us. So I've tried to choose my topics carefully and just not uh, not throw out there, you know, all the all the fear mongering. Oh, the Delta variant! Oh, it's it's out of control. And ah, there's some serious questions coming though. And, and if you're watching the news around the world, and, and I don't recommend doing this for more than a little bit at a time. In other words, immersing yourself in the news is a good way to build up that, uh, that fear and that fear addiction. I've heard people use the term fear porn, and you know, I know that's kind of a shocker. Oh, hey, you know, that's, uh, that's uncomfortable here. But I think it really does have, uh, I think that it translates as, as an analogy. People become addicted to that sensation of whatever. It's not. I don't know if it's your pleasure center or if it's just the fight or flight reflex that that activates in your brain. But some kind of endorphins must be released. That man, we go back and we want more. Well, I know that I'm going to regret this, but here I'm going to click on you know whatever news source and I'm going to read this until I'm convinced. That yes, this is everything that's going on, but so often that has a tendency to just bring us down. So I want to approach these these COVID restrictions and lockdowns from hopefully a productive standpoint. Now, this is going to involve looking at some things that are that are pretty crazy going on right now. Australia, for instance. You want to see what a police state looks like in in a country that used to be pretty normal as far as allowing, you know, greater freedoms for its people? Holy cow. It's there. Australia is is right there in the throes of a police state. And, and the thing that's so uh, astonishing is a lot of people see it and they think, well, you know, they're just doing what they have to do. They're excusing it. They're finding a reason to believe that, hey, this is, this is what has to be done. So we're going to visit that in a few moments. But I came across an article here. A friend sent this to me. Um, this is from Zero Hedge. Tyler Durden, which I'm assuming is a, uh, um, since that's a movie character, this, this is just a pseudonym under which someone writes. Um, actually, no, I take that back. I'm looking closer here. Thank you, Tyler. Tyler posted it. Scott Mason via the Epic Times wrote this. The article's called, Do National COVID Mandates Fulfill the Public Good? 
Now, that's a lofty-sounding title, but what this really comes down to is conscience. And the people I know who are most outspoken against, whether it's mask mandates, whether it's vaccine mandates, whether it's lockdowns, they are speaking out as a matter of conscience. See, I, I guess we're supposed to believe that, no, it's because they're Trumpers and they're possessed by the devil and they hate everybody and they're selfish and all they want is their freedoms. I don't think it's I don't think that quite describes it. But here's what Scott Mason says. He says a crisis has now darkened Western democracies just as surely as long benighted dictatorships. And he asks, wherein does it lie? And the answer is, it's in the disdain with which its proud technocrats dismiss conscience. Conscience is no quantifiable thing meaning it has no weight or measure. You can't list it among a nation's assets. Science can't even prove it exists. But he points out that conscience is no mere trifle. Conscience distinguishes humanity from the brutes of creation. It's the little spark of celestial fire that motivated the obedience of our nation's greatest heroes in their darkest hour. It's the voice of God in the soul. And over the past 18 months, our fundamental freedoms have all been assaulted by a virus. The public incursions against freedom have been protested, but the small private matter of conscience has received scant attention. And he asks, why? The answer is because it's the casualty of friendly fire by friends who never acknowledged it. So here's some explanation of this. He unpacks this a bit. Conscience was caught in the politicians' war on COVID and its variants. They confessed their faith in science to defeat it. Progress demanded it. Computer models predicted the threat to the control of the system of public health to be so terrible that to defend their technopoly, as coined by Neil Postman in his book of the same name, politicians seized extraordinary emergency powers to aid science in its certain victory. Now, their unwavering faith in science, he says, was completely irrational, if not unscientific. Science itself tells us that viruses are not living organisms. They cannot be killed. They also mutate. And all the gains from rushing the slow safety protocols of science to contain last year's virus were swiftly lost in subsequent variants. As the unflagging determination to win the war continues, he says the logic of the position grows. And that's because it was never a fight about science. It was a fight to defend the pride of the idol of technocracy and extend its dominance. And that just means more control for the technocrats. The Pfizer vaccine, now fully approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, is a marvel of speed and deployment. But its success rate of 39% against the dominant Delta variant would never have got it to trial a year ago. So the Fed's August 23rd, the FDA's August 23rd approval, rather, seems more of a participation trophy for speed and application than for actual success. What a great way to put that. I'm going to have to write that one down. But Scott Mason says, my concern is not to observe this evident absurdity. It's to note the moral consequence of fighting an extended, vain war against an immortal and invisible enemy, all with no defined exit strategy. 
That's a pretty good way to put it. And he says, for now, it's abundantly clear. Approving a failed vaccine while mandating passports allows for a permanent group of second-class citizens even after a state of emergency has ended. And it normalizes mandatory vaccinations for everyone, even when they're not useful. I don't know if you saw this over the weekend, but Biden and Fauci were both talking about we may have to mandate that uh, people get their boosters every five months. Scott Mason writes, in September, Quebec and British Columbia will require vaccination passports for non-essential activities. Some other provinces are considering following suit while the federal government is planning to mandate vaccinations for commercial air, train and cruise ship passengers, as well as for all federal employees. But he says we'd be naive to think it'll stop there. Consciences are being crushed in the mission creep. And he says, now, why do I cite conscience as a problem? Well, when politicians waived the legal liability of the vaccine manufacturers, they also demanded the medical community set aside its ethics, first through a sustained campaign of pressure to take the shot and now through mandates. If the campaign of pressure defied the bedrock ethical principle of informed consent established in the Nuremberg Code, then the mob's call for mandates on doctors and patients to defend our idol of technocracy is in defiance of our very essence as human beings. Martin Luther once noted that to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And the great civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. echoed his words. In his autobiography, he writes, On some positions, cowardice asks the question, Is it safe? Expedience asks the question, Is it politic? And vanity comes along and asks the question, Is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of convenience, but where he stands in moments of challenge, moments of great crisis and controversy. So the worth of individual conscience is the great legacy of the West. And its blessings have spread with the Nuremberg Code and and political defenses of conscience. But we're on the eve of its eclipse. Scott Mason says we're rejecting the lesson of history. Individuals ignore their conscience at the peril of their own souls. And when technocratic science is given the lead over the conscience of the nation, so much greater is the ruin. This can be avoided. The moral goodness of the freedom of association, the freedom of peaceful assembly, the freedom of thought and expression, and the freedom of conscience and religion, these are all enshrined as fundamental rights in Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But Scott Mason says they've all been set aside under the last 18 months under the auspices of an emergency. So the question he is asking, and he's asking particularly his fellow Canadians and politicians, is what sort of nation is being preserved when fundamental civil liberties have been cast aside and the inviolability of conscience has been despoiled as a medical necessity, a casualty of war? What sort of country will we return to? And what sort will our children inherit when the freedoms our charter calls fundamental give way to appeals of what is safe or politic or popular rather than what is right. He says it is indeed a time of crisis. All I can say is your conscience will accompany you through life and into whatever comes next. I would think being at peace with your conscience matters more than just about anything. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks once again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. There you will find links to each of the sponsors who help make this program possible. And I hope you'll take the time to do business with them, or at the very least, drop them a note. Let them know their message is reaching your ears. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, NMLS ID 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, and you can trust the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage to get you your financing figured out and squared away so when you find the home of your dreams, you're not dilly-dallying in the most competitive real estate market most people have ever seen. You have it, you can get it done, and you can pull the trigger on that home. You can call them at 435-703-4522. Their offices are at 619 South Bluff Street, Tower 1 and 2 in St. George, Utah. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You know, it's wise to learn from your own mistakes. But I also think it's pretty wise when you can learn from the mistakes of others. This is one of the reasons why I think it's brilliant to read um, classical literature. You know, you want to you read about uh, the, the dangers or the, the risk and the hazards of adultery? Hey, The Scarlet Letter, that's a classic novel, and it may involve fictional characters, but boy, it tells a story that, uh, you know, a wise person could look at and say, yeah, that invites more trouble than it solves. See how that works? Now, I would like to apply it to a real-world example. John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, describes how Australia has created a police state ostensibly to stop COVID-19, but the data shows it's not working. And so the question is, what could we learn from their experience? Miltimore says on Monday, New Zealand Prime Minister, this was last Monday, Jacinda Ardern announced the government would be extending its lockdown following an outbreak of the Delta variant. Ardern at a news conference in the capital, Wellington, said, we don't yet believe that we've reached the peak of this outbreak or necessarily the edge of it. Meanwhile, in nearby Australia, residents are entering the ninth week of a lockdown that had initially been scheduled for two weeks. In many of the hardest-hit parts of the city, NBC reports military personnel roam the streets and authorities issue fines of up to $3,700 to individuals breaking lockdown orders. That policy, by the way, has resulted in violent clashes between police and lockdown protesters, But public health officials have defended the policy, which they say is expected to last at least through September. Kerry Champ, the chief health officer in New South Wales State, says what this is about is buying us time. Now, John Miltimore says the decision by New Zealand and Australia to lock down and stay in lockdown as the virus spreads fits a a familiar pattern. In 2020, numerous governments around the world went into lockdown to attempt to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. In the United States, public health officials created a 15 days to slow the spread campaign, which quickly devolved in many places into indefinite closures of all economic sectors deemed non-essential. Now, the results of the lockdowns were catastrophic. Millions of job losses, millions of businesses destroyed, surging drug overdoses, increased youth suicide and depression, and a massive decrease in cancer screenings among them. 
Globally, as many as 150 million people are expected to slip into extreme poverty. That's according to the World Bank. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a professor at Stanford University Medical School, recently called the lockdowns the biggest public health mistake we've ever made. The harm to people is catastrophic, he says. And John Miltimore writes, the harms would be bad enough, but an abundance of evidence also suggests the lockdowns were ineffective at containing the virus. Nearly three dozen academic studies have been published suggesting that lockdowns do little to slow the spread of the virus. And and this is something I have to point out. John Miltimore has been one of the leading voices writing for the Foundation of Economic Education, which has a stable of stellar thinkers and writers and analysts that, uh, that write for it. And John is one of the best of the best. He's been writing about this ever since the, the outbreak uh, began. And he makes a lot of sense. He crunches the numbers. And here's what he says. Following the outbreak, outbreak last year, modelers warned that Sweden would incur at least 96,000 deaths by July 1st without mitigation. Now, they're talking July 1st of 2020. But to date, fewer than 15,000 Swedes have died with coronavirus. And Sweden saw a lower death spike than most of Europe. Moreover, neighbors like Norway and Finland, who had policies similar to Sweden, in fact, less stringent than Sweden, had among the lowest COVID mortality rates in Europe. Lockdowns have not served to control the epidemic in the places where they have been most vigorously enforced. That's what Dr. Bhattacharya told Newsweek earlier this week, earlier this year, rather. Unfortunately, the current lockdowns in Australia and New Zealand are proving no more effective at slowing the virus than the lockdowns of 2020, despite the hardline approach of their governments. I mean, you realize in in Australia, excuse me, the police are actually checking people's Fitbit trackers to determine, did you travel beyond the two kilometer, you know, uh, the, 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 the limitation that we gave you, the bubble that you must stay within in order to remain compliant. And they're telling people very openly, proudly, we will find out who you are and we will punish you. It's remarkable. But despite that hardline approach, John Miltimore writes, the three-day moving average for cases is nearly a 1,000 in Australia. That's nearly double its peak in 2020. New Zealand, meanwhile, cases have quickly surged to more than 60 per day, despite the the fact that New Zealand went into lockdown after learning of a single case of COVID. Whoops. Now, Miltimore says one reason lockdowns struggle to contain the virus is research shows that the stay-at-home orders may actually be counterproductive. University of Chicago economist Casey Mulligan noted in a National Bureau of Economic Research paper published in April, microevidence contradicts the public health ideal in which households would be places of solitary confinement and zero transmission. Instead, the evidence suggests that households show the highest transmission rates and that households are high-risk settings for the transmission of COVID-19. Huh. Now, John Miltimore says economists at the Rand Corporation and University of Southern California reached a similar conclusion regarding the ineffectiveness of shelter-in-place orders months later. The authors reported, We failed to find that shelter-in-place policies saved lives. We failed to find that countries or U.S. states that implemented SIP shelter-in-place policies earlier and in which SIP policies had longer to operate 
had lower excess deaths than countries or U.S. states that were slower to implement SIP policies. Now, sadly, Miltimore writes, Governments are compounding the tragedy of the pandemic with lockdown policies. Citizens aren't just forced to deal with a deadly pandemic. They also are forced to contend with police states that are growing increasingly aggressive and brutal. For instance, in Australia, rescue dogs recently were shot dead to prevent charity workers from picking them up. Why? Well, that would involve travel. Go figure. Easier to just kill them. The state was also using health hotels to involuntarily confine COVID-positive citizens, while multiple quarantine facilities are being constructed, including a facility in Queensland that will house up to 1,000 people. Facility, camp, you know, the line's getting blurry here. Australians who declined to submit themselves to state confinement have found themselves on the run. Police allegedly are monitoring fitness trackers to make sure individuals are not traveling beyond the boundaries established by the state. Channel 9 News in Sydney reports it's getting harder and harder to hide if you're doing the wrong thing. And in the article, you'll find links to various videos like police in Australia removing a man suspected of having COVID, suspected from his home for an indefinite stay at a COVID hotel. Holy cow. Australians who've gathered to resist these measures have been violently suppressed by police who've shown no hesitation to use rubber bullets and even pepper spray against them. And there's a link to video of a child crying after being hit in the face with pepper spray by police during a freedom rally. The images are terrifying and many people are beginning to awaken to the moral horror that's engulfing the land down under. Terror is what Australia's government has become, says John Miltimore. Let us pray that New Zealand and the rest of the world finally recognize the true face of lockdowns. He has a quote here from uh, former President Harry Truman. Once a a government is committed to the principle of silencing the voice of opposition, it only has one way to go. And that is down the path of increasingly repressive measures until it becomes a source of terror to all its citizens and creates a country where everyone lives in fear. Boy, that's that's a pretty powerful warning. And it seems like it would apply to us as much as it applies to anybody else. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Show some love for my sponsors. And thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there, and welcome to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out to the sponsors who make this program possible Monday through Friday. It's MonticelloCollege.org. You want to talk about an education for our time, a place where new American founders are being created. Yep, that's the place. There's a link there in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I would encourage you to check them out for yourself. Also, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and LifesavingFood.com. 
Food storage has always been a good idea, but it's looking like a really, really powerfully good idea right about now. And I have links to all of these sponsors, again, at the thebrianheidshow.com. So, where to begin today? I think I want to start with something that, uh, this is a little bit chilling, but it's something that we ought to be aware of because you won't hear much about this through traditional uh, corporate media sources. And that is looking at the the World Economic Forum and just some of the things that its uh, mucky mucks have in mind. They're looking at, uh, you know, the Great Reset. I believe they're the ones who actually coined the phrase. That's where we get the phrase, you'll own nothing and like it. But there's a video that they have released, and I've got a link to it that I hope you'll check out. When you consider how much has changed in the last 18 months, how many of those changes, how many of the things that are now, you know, part of the new normal, whether it's masking, social distancing, vaccines, mandates, you know, all the different protocols, the plexiglass shields, all of that. How many of those changes do you wish could be permanent in nature? Well, before you answer, take a look at a very interesting two-minute video from the World Economic Forum. It's titled, How Our Lives Could Soon Look. And I'm just going to walk you through this video, even though um, you will only hear the audio for it. It has some nice little little titles and, and captions that go with it. And I mean, this is not this is not published as, as a scary thing. It's not like oh, we're coming for you, you know, with the, the evil glee of some maniacal dictator. This is how they see the future. This is the the upside of what they think at the economic World Economic Forum. That the future could hold. In fact, they can hardly contain their excitement. There are advantages, there are opportunities, you know, that are, there are inherent in this. They are the ones who posted a title back in January about what is the Great Reset, which basically acknowledges that this pandemic is being used to bring about a new social and economic order. And it's making fun of those who predicted, you know, what would happen. About a month later, the World Economic Forum posted another video titled Lockdowns Are Quietly Improving Cities Across the World, which was nothing less than insane. Now, they eventually deleted that video, but it doesn't mean they don't believe it. Needless to say, a lot of folks, at least those who are paying attention, don't really like these videos. They're disgusted by them. 99.85% of the comments express utter disgust. They're downvoted on YouTube. But more absurdity has just landed, and on August 17th, the World Economic Forum posted a video titled, This is How Our Lives Would Soon Look. And it looks like the trailer of a dystopian horror movie where people are treated like dehumanized cattle. So from the World Economic Forum, this is directly from the source, This is How Our Lives Could Soon Look. Take a peek at the future. And it talks about five ways... The pandemic could reshape our lives. Number one, offices will be reimagined. The shift to home working will mean offices can serve different functions. They could be used as a client showroom, a research lab, or somewhere to meet and reconnect with colleagues. Number two, the advent of 15-minute spaces. Neighborhood hubs could replace some of the perks we miss by not commuting to an office. Now, they might contain gyms or bars or art galleries or offer networking opportunities. 
and they would be no more than a 15-minute walk from your home. Oh, no cars. Number three, the rise of cloud markets. Ghost kitchens, restaurants that solely deliver takeaway meals, exploded in popularity during lockdowns. These could morph into cloud markets. Analytics-driven services that license and deliver food to you from from a range of brands. Number four, you could be identified by your heartbeat. Facial recognition systems are often stumped by face masks. But your heartbeat is just as unique as your face. NASA has invented a system that can ID you from your heartbeat using a laser. Number five, digital technology will change the way children learn. While homeschooling was challenging for many families, it also had benefits for those with access to digital tools. Children could learn at their own pace while improving their digital skills. Education in the future could become a hybrid of school and home-based learning, combining the best of both worlds. What pandemic-era changes would you like to become permanent? This is the World Economic Forum asking these questions. And by the way, you know, it's, it's a cheery-looking video. It really, I mean, people, nobody's sad. Nobody's, you know, trudging off to the camps to, you know, to melt metal to make tanks. They all look like they're pretty well-adjusted, but holy cow. Some of those changes. And when it talks about the best of both worlds in, in terms of, you know, school and home, somehow I don't think that uh, it's really embracing the best of homeschooling or, you know, freeing your child from the education bureaucracy. I think it sounds more like, uh, I don't know, maybe they're, they're looking at uh, this will be a good way to get us into people's homes. To have some oversight on what those kids are being taught at home. Crazy. But overwhelmingly, from this video, they make it clear they don't want you or your children to leave the house. You should work from home, your children should learn from home, and these changes should be permanent. So offices will need to be repurposed, entire neighborhoods will need to be redesigned. And if you do decide to go crazy and actually get out of the house to meet other people, well, those who know best would like it to be like reconnecting with colleagues or just meeting somewhere with hand sanitizer and permanent masks. That's, that's what's in the image, by the way, from the, uh, from the video. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention everything is very, very compliant with the masking and so forth. And they want to track you in the creepiest way possible. NASA has invented a system that can ID you from your heartbeat using a laser. The author here says, I hate every word in this sentence. (laughs) I don't blame them. According to the World Economic Forum, masks will be a permanent thing. And because of that, their precious face recognition systems won't work as well. So what's the solution? Ah, stop with the masks because pandemics are temporary. No, no, no. How about shoot lasers right at our hearts, listen to our heartbeats, to ideas. Stop with the mask. Stop tracking of individuals. Are you crazy? We just want to keep track of you some other way. And they're also laser-focused on our children. They want to shape and mold them according to their dystopian principles. And for this reason, they promote permanent remote learning on screens. Now, although remote learning has been nothing less than disastrous for the development and mental well-being of children, the World Economic Forum wants it to become permanent. And then to sell that insane idea, they claim, well, this will improve your kids' digital skills. 
The author of this article from VigilantCitizen.com says, this is the weakest argument I've ever heard regarding anything in my life. Children today do not need to learn how to improve their digital skills. They need to learn how to use phones and tablets, or they do learn how to use phones and tablets before they actually learn to walk. If anything, we need to scale back their digital skills by a couple of notches and boost their go-outside-and-get-dirty skills. The World Economic Forum knows very well kids need to play, to socialize, and communicate with other children in order to develop properly. But it looks like they don't really want children to develop properly. That's the scary, terrifying truth about their agenda. They're looking to deny vital elements of a child's development in order to create the kind of human being they want living in their dystopian society. Now, just like the other videos previously released, this one was received with universal disgust. I like this response. All I see in this video is more control, endless use of masks, less freedom, and less social contact. If this is the change you uh, try to depict as a positive thing, I hope you'll take a good long look in the mirror and think for yourself if this really is the life. So, I'll have a link to this on the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I don't know, maybe you see it as a positive thing. Maybe I'm just looking at this from the wrong angle. But it sure seems to denote that somebody knows what's best. I just don't know if I want to live in a joyless, freedomless world where everything that makes life worth living is banned. Masks and hand sanitizer everywhere. Stay in your home. And we'll extract whatever we need from you via technology. Just doesn't have the appeal to me that uh, that regular life did. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out for the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. If you or someone you love is, let's say, fleeing from a population center along the West Coast. Just hypothetically, they want to get out. Maybe Antifa doesn't uh, do it for you. (laughs) Maybe you're just tired of all the big brotherism. But you decide you want to go to where, you want to go to a place where there is some freedom. And the Intermountain West seems to be that place, and I guess the real estate market seems to bear this out. This is where a lot of people want to be. Can't really say that I blame them. But the trouble is, it is hard to find a home because they don't stay on the market. The competition is very fierce. What this means is you got to have your financing squared away before you find that dream home. And this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in because Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry, clearly understands the ins and outs of what the lender needs, what the borrower needs. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can call 435-703-4522. Or you can see her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Might even want to drop her a note. There's an email link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Be worth your while to tell her, hey, I heard your message because I was listening to Brian's show. Let's talk about wisdom. And then first we have to distinguish wisdom from knowledge. Knowledge is good. Knowledge can apply. But sometimes knowledge becomes obsolete. There's a reason we don't, uh, you know, bleed people anymore when they have a fever. 
because we have found that uh, there were things that superseded the knowledge that, yes, 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 this is the best thing to do. Let's uh, bleed him, apply some more leeches, and he'll be up and around in no time. Wisdom, on the other hand, is something that remains applicable in all times and places. And it's because wisdom is based in human nature. Now, one of the things that we might draw upon, seeing as we live in a time where uh, there's, there's an increasing sense of crisis, how might we respond? And the good news is that there are people who have written about this. In fact, uh, Thomas Paine wrote about it in 1776. There really is nothing new under the sun. This is uh, an essay called The Crisis by Thomas Paine, published December 23rd, 1776. Some of this is going to sound familiar to you. Thomas Paine said, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. He wrote, Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. He said, heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Now we're going to substitute a couple of words here. Instead of Britain, we're going to say global cap. In other words, the, the those who know best and they're, are trying right now to assert control. Global Cap with an army to enforce her tyranny has declared that she has a right to not only jab, but to bind us in all cases whatsoever. And if being bound in that manner is not slavery, then there is not such a thing as slavery upon earth. Even the expression is impious, impious rather, for so unlimited a power can belong only to God. Thomas Paine wrote, I have as little superstition in me as any man living, but my secret opinion has ever been and still is that God Almighty will not give a people up, will not give up a people to military destruction or leave them unsupportedly to perish who have so earnestly and so repeatedly sought to avoid the calamities of war by every decent method which wisdom could invent. Neither have I so much of the infidel in me as to suppose that he has relinquished the government of the world and given us up to the care of devils. It is surprising to see how rapidly a panic will sometimes run through a country. All nations and ages have been subject to them. Yet panics, in some cases, have their uses. They produce as much good as hurt. Their duration is always short. Their mind soon grow, the mind soon grows through them and acquires a firmer habit than before, but their peculiar advantage is that they are the touchstones of sincerity and hypocrisy and bring things and men to light, which otherwise might have lain forever undiscovered. Thomas Paine wrote, In fact, they have the same effect upon secret traitors, which an imaginary apparition would have upon a private murderer. They sift out the hidden thoughts of man and hold them up in public to the world. He says there are cases which cannot be overdone by language, and this is one. There are persons, too, who see not the full extent of the evil which threatens them. They solace themselves with the hopes that the enemy, if he succeed, will be merciful. But Thomas Paine said it is the madness of folly to expect mercy 
from those who have refused to do justice, and even mercy, where conquest is the object, is only a trick of war. The cunning of the fox is as murderous as the violence of the wolf, and we ought to guard equally against both. He says, by perseverance and fortitude, we have the prospect of a glorious issue. By cowardice and submission, the sad choice of a variety of evils, a ravaged country, a depopulated city, habitations without safety, and slavery without hope. Look on this picture and weep over it. And if there, re- if there yet remains one thoughtless wretch who believes it not, let him suffer it unlamented. Conclusion, I thank God that I fear not. I see no real cause for fear. I know our situation well and can see the way out of it. And the Bionic Mosquito, which published this, uh, this crisis from Thomas Paine, finishes with four verses of Scripture. Now, I didn't invite you to come to Sunday school here, but I want you to hear these verses of Scripture, if nothing else, just for the reassurance that, again, wisdom transcends time and place. It applies at all times and in all places. This is from Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Deuteronomy 31 and 6. Be strong and of a good courage, fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that go, that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And finally, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I don't know. Reading an old, you know, reading a pamphlet from the Revolutionary War. Some people may say, oh, that's very quaint. Yes. <laughs> uh, but what, what applicable, you know, use does that have for our time? Well, you need to think a little bit about uh, the, the prospect of what faced the American people in December of 1776. It was in no way written in stone that their little revolution against the king and their, their secession from the mother government was going to succeed. In fact, on paper... Everything was stacked against them. The King of England commanded the largest, most advanced, most well-funded, well-trained army in the world. There's no way they could have prevailed. And yet, with moral clarity, in their own words, with a firm reliance upon divine providence, meaning God's plan for them, they did. Now, there's a message in there that goes beyond just simply, let's thump the Bible and say amen. If God could deliver them in their time of trouble, why could he not deliver us in our time of trouble? And for that matter, how did they approach the situation that we might also learn from their example? Just a couple of things running through my mind. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here for lifesavingfood.com. This is my friend Kendall Whiting, and uh, I I love the fact that he has this food storage program, and it's it's very accessible. You click on the link in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, and you can see it's not a one size fits all kind of thing. A lot of people get intimidated if they haven't if they don't have an existing food storage program, they're blown away by the idea of how could I possibly put away enough food to last me and you know however many family members you know for a year or maybe even longer. Even people who have a food storage program understand it takes time. It takes consistency to build up those stores. But I'm going to ask you this question, you know, when is the best time to start? And the answer is pretty much the same as the answer to the question, when is the best time to plant a tree? The answer is 25 years ago. So if you haven't been actively building your food storage program for the last 25 years, or even if you have, Chances are pretty good that, uh, you know, you have some gaps or things you have rotated in or out, or maybe there are some things that just are no longer um, viable to use, so you need to replace them. I'd ask you to please give a chance to lifesavingfood.com. They've got uh, packages that will fit any budget, any family size, any person's, uh, you know, readiness to, to dive into food storage or just to fill in some gaps in their own plan. And when you mention the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout, they'll take 10% off your purchase. So save you some money and you'll have some peace of mind to go along with it. So I'm going to include a, a very special bonus in the show notes today for people who are serious about stocking up on intellectual ammo regarding the public health mandates. And I, I know that some people will feel like, well, you know, this is a losing battle. We People had the chance, you know, to, to stop these lockdowns from coming back and the mask mandates. And, you know, we see this playing out in, in school rooms and in school board meetings and businesses. And now there's talk of, well, we're trying to decide if the government has the power and the authority, the legitimate authority to force people to get the vaccination. I know it, it seems like it's been going on for a long time. It's intensifying. And, you know, the people who had a chance to stand up, that would be common folks like you and me. Some did, but not enough have. And clearly those who are in power, those who know best, are really pushing for we've got to lock this down now. We've got to take control and make it stick. And that's a scary prospect. Well, the American Institute for Economic Research has been one of the leading um, organizations, institutions, if you will, in in tracking what exactly is being accomplished by these various COVID-19 mandates. And they don't take this from a partisan point of view. They're not anti-vax. I mean, look, any any label you want to apply to try to marginalize them, well, these are anti-vaxxers. These are, these are right-wing reactionaries. They're Trumpers. Nope. These are economists. These are analysts. These are people who do very well at crunching numbers and and seeing what does the data tell us. And I guess, you know, you shouldn't be too surprised if, I guess, if all of your information has come to you primarily through mainstream sources, maybe you'd be surprised. I'm not shocked to find that uh, the American Institute for Economic Research has been one of the leading voices of reason on how to approach battling this pandemic. 
because no matter how you slice it, we have many, many years of experience in watching how to deal with pandemic. There's public health law and public health policy that's been in place for a long time. People don't realize Woodstock took place during a pandemic. I believe it was the Hong Kong flu. There was an earlier pandemic, like 10 years before that. And again, they dealt with that. But it wasn't done by shutting everything down, declaring this person non-essential or this job non-essential and telling them, you know, you can't work. We didn't do it by putting masks on people. We didn't do it by, by letting people in power assume control over virtually every aspect of our lives. And we certainly didn't do it by scaring ourselves to death with fear porn 24-7. So what's happened in the last year and a half has been a pretty radical departure from what came before. And again, it was AIER and Jeffrey Tucker who let out and said, and, and the reason that they did what they did, those in power, was based upon a 2006 experiment, I believe by a high school student, that uh, was, was wargaming and doing a simulation of, well, what if we had a really serious pandemic? How could we possibly handle this? In other words, it wasn't based on real-world experience. But here we are. And now we've got uh, the Delta variant, and now we're hearing that, uh, oh no, look, the, the uh, vaccine's not as effective as we thought it would be. I mean, they're already talking in, in the nation of Israel, which is one of the most vaccinated countries on the face of the earth. They're already talking about how the people who have received both Doses. In other words, we would call them fully vaccinated. But very soon they will be considered unvaccinated. They will become second class citizens, much as the unvaccinated are, are slowly becoming second class citizens here in America, simply because they've got to have a booster. Joe Biden and Anthony Fauci were talking about uh, boosters being needed every five months moving forward. And if you're one of those people who's, you know, gone out and got the vaccine, I don't know. I'm not telling you you should have, you know, should have buyer's regret or, or anything like that. But you got to be wondering at some point, well, wait a minute. Why did I get this? If I still have to mask up. I still have to socially distance. I'm still being treated like cattle every time I go to get on a plane or whatever. I thought the vaccine was supposed to open the door to life returning to normal. No, apparently that wasn't the plan. And apparently it may have never been the plan. So what I have for you, and this is included in today's show notes, is a marvelous, comprehensive, well-sourced explanation of why COVID-19 mandates will not work for the Delta variant. Now, I will tell you right now, this is a, this is a lengthy piece, but it's lengthy because it is extremely well-sourced. I'm not kidding. On, on certain issues, I mean, I'm looking at the footnotes here. Okay, he's he's got footnotes. This is from uh, an author by the name of Paul Alexander. But when he tells you that uh, you know this is this is the study that we looked at, we looked at uh, lockdowns and found about the, the about the catastrophic harms or consequences and failures of lockdowns. I'm looking at 88 different footnotes. So if you want to crunch the numbers, you want to look at this yourself, you want to verify, have at it. It's, it's a very lengthy essay, but it is rich in details, rich in documentation, and it comes to the conclusion 
that all of these mandates, what Australia's doing, what's being proposed here, does not work for the Delta variant. What it does work for is bringing a new and stronger form of authoritarianism into being than we have seen before in our lives. And this is, I'll just share with you, these are, these are the final words of, of this essay. We are hearing discussions now about renewed lockdowns and masking, etc., due to the Delta variant, which emerged as one of the weakest in terms of lethality, while being very transmissible. Now, this greatly concerns us. We're horrified by this prospect. We've shown you the actual data as it relates to Delta, not the contrived drivel and unscientific nonsense spouted by the mainstream media and the public health experts. There is absolutely no reason, no good reason, to re-enter lockdowns and school closures or masking in response to the Delta variant. We find no evidence that this variant warrants masks in children. And Paul Alexander says, we leave you with the words of Donald Henderson. Experience has shown that communities faced with epidemics or other adverse events respond best and with the least anxiety when the normal social functioning of the community is least disrupted. Strong political and and public health leadership to provide reassurance and to ensure that needed medical care services are provided are critical elements. And if either is seen to be less than optimal, a manageable epidemic could move toward catastrophe. So I'm including this as an added bonus, and this I understand not everybody's going to have time to sit down and read this and follow through on all of those footnotes. I mean, it's, it's a very comprehensive paper. But if you're one of those people for whom, you know, I want to know for myself, I don't want to live on borrowed light, here's your opportunity. Check it out in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I mean, you could, you could spend a couple of weeks going over this paper and probably still not cover everything that it contains. But that's a good thing, right? You want to come from a position of knowledge rather than just the superficial, right, I parrot everything that I hear. Because <laughs> there's a lot of folks that are content to do that. Don't be one of those folks. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with our final segment right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I trust I haven't given you too much fear, because that can uh, interfere with one's digestion and everything, but... I swear it is so hard every day to, to look at all the various stories and the various angles to approach what's going on around us and, and to, to try to find the ones that, that actually matter. But uh, there are hard facts to be faced. And, and just please understand, my goal is not to get people worked up into a condition where they're just absolutely panicked and going, oh, man, this is so much worse than we thought. It's bad. Okay, I'm not going to try and minimize it or sugarcoat it and tell you that, oh, yeah, you know, this ain't no thing. Yeah, we're good. It's bad. But the solutions that we're looking for are not likely to come from the top down. So I guess if there's anything that should bring you comfort, it's that you and I probably have greater control over 
how we react and how we allow this to influence us than we realize. And as I said in the other hour of the show, if, if you have to unplug from time to time to kind of find that equilibrium, get your feet back under you, by all means do it. If that means turning off this program, then do it. I'll still be here when you come back. I'll still love you, but we, we've, we've got to approach it more from an individual standpoint. And I love those people who, when, when confronted with the reality of men, you know, there are people who are seriously trying to fit me for a straitjacket, a, a, you know, figurative straitjacket. Take my liberties, take my choices, you know, indoctrinate my kids into this mindset of, of servitude. There's got to be something I can do about it. And some people have risen to the occasion. I look at my friend Eric Mutsos. And, and whatever you may think of Eric, I've got to tell you, that guy is someone who has, uh, has heard a calling in his life and answered that calling. And I personally look at what he's been able to accomplish and the, the good that he's been able to do, and I think that's what happens. When a person, you know, feels that sense of calling and acts on it and and partners with God, help me find the way to do the best with what I've got to work with, you better believe God will magnify your influence. I think Eric's a perfect example of this. So there's an article on today's LouRockwell.com. This is from Dr. Joseph Mercola. Now, that that name may be familiar to you. If it's not, I think it should be only because uh, Dr. Mercola is very much under attack for being one of those voices of dissent against the technocratic, you know, apparatus. But he has an article here called, Will You Love Your Servitude? And this, again, points us back to, there's a choice that each one of us gets to make as to whether or not we will or will not go along with what is being foisted on us by those who know best. He starts by citing Aldous Huxley, an English writer and philosopher who wrote nearly 50 books, the most famous being Brave New World, a dystopian science fiction novel published back in 1932. Now, the world in the novel is a futuristic one based on science and technology. Emotions and the sense of individuality are eliminated starting in childhood via the use of conditioning. Now, this is a work of fiction, but the concepts on which it's based, including the power to condition humans to accept an abnormal state of life, are not. And there's a terrific video that is linked in this article, which, which can show you what this means. It's, uh, it's Love Your Servitude, Aldous Huxley and George Orwell, comparing the two of them. And you actually get to hear a 1962 interview with Huxley in which he speaks about the use of persuasion and conditioning to gain ultimate power and control over society. One of the things he said is if you're going to control a population for any length of time, you must have some measure of consent. File that away. That means nobody can enslave you without you saying okay and going along with it. Frederick Douglass once said, How, when a slave becomes a happy slave, he has effectively relinquished all that makes him human. How does a human being get to the point of loving servitude? Asked Dr. Mercola. Or consenting to live in or even enjoy a state of affairs that they should not? The answer is often it's through techniques of terrorism. And while the word implies violence, some of the most profound and dangerous techniques combine methods of terror with methods of acceptance. That's according to Huxley. 
By bringing in elements of persuasion, it's possible for a controlling oligarchy to get people to love their servitude. In 1957, William Sargent published Battle for the Mind, which delves into the techniques used by evangelists, psychiatrists, and politicians to change beliefs and behavior. Religious leaders produce conversions, Huxley said, by heightening psychological stress, talking about hell, then releasing this stress by offering a promise of heaven. Prisoners of war can be similarly brainwashed and pressured into making admissions of guilt. Now, Pavlov's dog study is one of the most well-known displays of the power of conditioning. His dog salivated not only in response to food, but in response to any object or event that they learned to associate with food, namely the ringing of a bell. And these findings also apply to humans who can be conditioned to associate abstract images with food, as shown by researchers with the Welcome Department of Neuroimaging Science at University College London. When shown pictures of food-associated images, their reaction times increased, and areas of their brains and their brain involved in motivation and emotional processes were activated. After Pavlov's demonstration of classical conditioning, the profound observations sunk into the creature, Huxley said, and Pavlovian methods were recognized as tools that could be applied with extraordinary efficiency, creating armies of totally devoted people. And just sit back for a second and consider how that has played out in terms of how people think about masking, think about vaccinations, think about the unvaccinated. There are people who are, uh, they're not just salivating, they are rabid, they're foaming at the mouth over these things because they have been conditioned to see the people who don't walk in lockstep with them as a threat. Yeah, it takes a little bit of time, but I can't argue with the effectiveness. It really looks like it's, it's done well. Now, Dr. Mercola talks about how ultimate power involves voluntary acceptance. He says non-terroristic methods are also essential in gaining ultimate control, as some measure of voluntary acceptance is necessary. Suggestion and hypnosis are two examples. According to Huxley, about 20% of people are easily hypnotized, while 20% are very difficult, if not impossible, to hypnotize. The remaining 60%, meaning the majority, can be gradually hypnotized if you work hard enough at it. Now, Similar figures apply to the power of placebo or suggestion, Huxley said, referring to a study on the administration of morphine or a placebo following surgery. The subjects were experiencing similar levels of pain and were able to receive injections for pain relief whenever requested. Half the injections were morphine, half were distilled water, the placebo. While 20% of the subjects got just as much pain relief from the placebo as the morphine, 20% got no relief from the placebo, and 60% got some or occasional relief from the placebo. Why are these studies important? Well, because it isn't hard to figure out which segment of the population is extremely vulnerable to suggestion and which is in the intermediate space. As Huxley pointed out, such differences allow for organized society to exist because if everyone were unsuggestible, there would be no order to society. At the other end of the spectrum, if everyone were highly suggestible, dictatorship would be inevitable. So having the majority of the people in the moderately suggestible category is a happy medium, allowing for the formation and preservation of organized society. In fact, he points out Hitler understood human weaknesses and exploited them. For instance, knowing that conditioning is easier when people are tired, when did he hold all of his big speeches? At night, so people would be less 
incapable of resisting persuasion because they were tired. Now, he goes on to talk about the 1962 infamous experiment by Yale University psychologist Stanley Milgram, testing the limits of human obedience to authority. Now, that experiment was later criticized as being unethical, but it confirmed in accordance with other studies that were very similar, that people will willingly and blindly obey authoritarian orders if they feel disconnected from their actions. Someone standing there in a lab coat saying, the experiment must continue, is enough for people to say, okay, well, I have permission. And they they go along with it. He talks about uh, the the refrain from the World Economic Forum, you'll own nothing and, and like it. We're being conditioned to think in this way. It's a very powerful article here from Dr. Joseph Mercola. I uh, strongly recommend you take a look at it. If nothing else, it should open your eyes to when someone is trying to condition you to uh, do something that maybe you wouldn't otherwise do. Now, listen, if you have comments, I want to get your feedback. Could you please write your comments on a $20 bill? Send it to me via... Okay, no, that conditioning wasn't going to work, was it? Actually, I have a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You can either send me a written comment if you're feeling froggy, You can actually send me a voicemail comment. I get enough of these, I'll start using them on the show. But uh, I would like to hear from you. Because every so often I need to be reminded, lest I get a little too full of myself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.